Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Sheila Tevez from the University of British Columbia on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You got your PhD from the University of Washington in Steve Hennikoff's lab. You then moved on to do a postdoc with Robert Tishan at UC Berkeley. And currently you are assistant professor at the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I kind of like to tell this joke um, that I started off in, sci in science with high school um, biology and reading about the TCA, um, learning about it in high school biology and having to memorize all those things and realizing I do not want to do this. So then for college, I ran the opposite way. I tried to go into um, pre-law philosophy And I thought, oh, I don't like this either. <laughs> so I actually ran back to science and ended up taking more chemistry classes, more biochemistry classes, more genetics. And slowly I overcame that initial fear of like, well, that's too much memorizing, but rather it was actually just the nature of how it was for high school. But as you learn more into the deeper parts of it, you get to think about the problems, understand how things work. And this is really what drew me into science. For biology part, it was um, more serendipitous, I suppose. It was kind of my first research job was uh, kind of like, I'd like to say that it drew me from the very beginning, but um, it's not the reality. Uh, the reality is the first thing you get is usually kind of what piques your interest. And my first job was uh, as a undergrad um, research experience at the University of Wisconsin. And I was matched with somebody there and they were studying transcription. And transcription factors in particular. And so I thought, well, this could be really interesting. And I kind of just followed it along. Um, and ever since then, I don't know, it's just kind of one track after another. Um, it seems like looking back, there's like a grand scheme of it, but um, it's one series of choice after another leading to where I am now um, with, with not necessarily like a big grand vision from the beginning. Um, but I think I've followed it. Every choice has been a, a choice towards what I wanted to study at that time. And I think overall it's been good. And you're enjoying um, the journey more the longer it takes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, it changes every step of the way. 
Um, I learn uh, new roles. I learn doing science in different ways, from moving from bench work to bigger projects to now multiple projects and more on the managing side of things. And it's been um, a really interesting challenge. So let's come to your science that centers around transcriptional memory through the cell cycle. Um, you began your scientific career in the lab of Stephen Hennikoff. Um, there you looked at how RNA pol 2 can transcribe through nucleosomes. Um, can you briefly talk about how torsional stress destabilizes the nucleosomes and what you did in Stephen's lab? Yeah. Um, so it started out with um, uh, the lab studying how nucleosome dynamics really interplay with transcription. So the nucleosome is this packaging system that we have for the DNA. And this has to be overcome whenever you have any type of DNA templated processes. In our case, we study transcription. And so RNA polymerase has to deal with the nucleosome at some point. And so one of the, before I started the lab, one of the recent papers that was published is this new technology that the lab had developed to study nucleosome turnover. Steve liked to um, have an associated catchy name for each of his technique. And so he termed it catch it, <laughs> which is capturing nucleosome turnover in some other <laughs> longer, um, longer uh, version. But I was interested in, in looking at that in terms of how transcription Uh, affects the nucleosome turnover. And so I discovered that when transcription is activated, nucleosome turnover increases, which might not seem that um, surprising. But for me, it was a, a it was a bit of a surprise because it kind of went against the the notion of epigenetic memory. If the if the polymerase kind of almost plows through and causes nucleosome turnover, then how does epigenetic memory uh, work, at least in terms of activating histone marks? Um, and so uh, after that, after I found that out, I was able to kind of look back and see, well, could nucleosome turnover affect transcription? And so that was one of our follow-up studies, and I was trying to understand how that might relate and feedback to the RNA polymerase regulation. And that's how we got into torsional stress. So torsional stress is this idea of the DNA double helix that is uh, twisted um, because of how it, uh, the structure of the double helix. And if you um, denatured double helix, it could lead to positive supercoiling on one end and negative supercoiling on one on the other end. In this case, denaturing not by any physical um, or, or yeah physical things, but just by the polymerase transcribing, right? Because you are pulling yeah. it apart because you need to get to the DNA sequence. Right. The RNA polymerase acts as a clamp that um, clamps in between the two double strands and you have a helicase that opens up the, the two strands to allow for transcription to occur. So that form of opening up the double helix actually forms this, it, coupled with the translocation of the RNA polymerase actually causes the, this type of supercoiling. 
Now, the DNA is not naked uh, within the cell. It's actually wrapped around nucleosomes. And the nucleosomes themselves can either buffer or um, enhance torsional stress, depending on whether it's a positive or a negative supercoiling because of how the DNA is wrapped around the nucleosomes. And so I was trying to understand the interplay between the nucleosomes, the torsional stress, and then the transcription polymerase going through the gene and how that could all feed back into gene regulation. But at that time, we didn't have a good way of looking at torsional stress uh, within cells um, in a genome-wide manner. And so uh, I talked to Steve and he's like, well, you could just try and do uh, try a method that you can see if it will try and measure it genome wide. So I went back to the literature and I found older studies that looked at um, supercoiling, but in um, in specific instances, either in bacterial uh, genomes or in plasmids. Um, and so it was kind of, okay, now there's kind of a system, but we need to translate it to a genome-wide approach. Um, and so latter half of my PhD is more on developing that technology to try and adapt uh, this supercoiling assay into a genome-wide um, approach. And we were able to do it uh, with... Um, a lot of help from other people in the lab after a lot of troubleshooting. And so we were able to show that the supercoiling stress generated by the RNA polymerase um, can feed back into nucleosome dynamics and into the uh, RNA polymerase regulation itself. And so it was all kind of interrelated um, uh, in I wish it was as simple as that, but there is a lot more complicated uh, <laughs> things about that. But um, it, that's kind of the gist of it. So the, the modifications that are on the histones and on the nucleosomes, do they play a role in this supercoiling effect? So if they are somehow, I mean, there is like, if they are methylated, then the charge obviously is different than if they are acetylated, right? So is there a, a feedback of those modifications into the way how the DNA is supercoiled? That's a great question. You know, it is something that actually we didn't uh, look further into. Um, and I think that that is a natural next step for that uh, research direction. Um, so, yeah, I think either inhibiting uh, histone modifications or um, enhancing those histone modifications to seeing how the torsion is affected um, and whether it feedbacks into gene regulation. Yeah. So Stephen is uh, still very active in developing new methods and his methods are like, uh, yeah, very popular right now. Are you still in contact with him and, and discussing and uh, is he still an influence for you? Oh, yeah. Um, so we uh, we just invited him as a seminar speaker here a couple of years ago. Um, I extensively use Cut and Tag, uh, Cut and Run in my own lab now um and so when we were trying to establish it here we obviously asked him for a lot of help um and along the way he's always been a good mentor um in terms of 
looking for postdocs during my postdoc and starting my own lab. Um, so yes, yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah, talk, uh, talking about your postdoc, you then joined the Tishan lab, or the, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. I'm sorry. <laughs> and That's you started. Correct, yes, the lab. And you started to work on met methodic bookmarking, uh, basically the work you are currently focusing on. Um, there were two publications in Eli from that time looking at uh, methodic bookmarking. Uh, one looked at stable bookmarking by TBP and the other at dynamic bookmarking by transcription factors. Um, can you talk about both mechanisms and what the difference between them might be? Yeah, so the the motivation for the switch was really um, my desire to understand cellular memory. And for me, it kind of translated to transcriptional memory. Um, and so I wanted to understand how transcription programs are maintained over time, uh, which is uh, one avenue for cellular memory. And one of the things that um, came up during my research was that transcription programs are um, completely silenced or mostly silenced, I should say, um, during mitosis. So there's lots of um, things happening during mitosis. You have the nuclear membrane disassembly. You have the mitotic chromosomes condensing. You have all sorts of rearrangement at the cellular level. And so then once the new daughter cells arise, how do the new cells know which genes to turn back on and which ones to keep silenced? And so one of the theories um, in this field has been termed mitotic bookmarking. And that's the idea that a select few transcription factors can actually remain associated and bound to their target sites during mitosis, even though the chromosomes are condensed, um, and that um, that binding allows for efficient reactivation of transcription following mitosis. Now, this, this mitotic bookmarking idea uh, came about because um, it was discovered that the DNA's hypersensitive sites on chromosomes, mitotic chromosomes, are actually maintained, even though they're highly condensed. And so the theory was that transcription factors would bind to those sites to maintain the DNA's hypersensitivity and maintain the opening open chromatin region. But historically, uh, people have observed that transcription factors are actually excluded from mitotic chromosomes. And that's through immunofluorescence. Um, you know, from the early 90s, immunofluorescence of dozens and dozens of transcription factors have found that almost all of them are excluded from mitotic chromosomes. So how does this work? You have DNA's hypersensitivity maintaining, maintained, they can observe that, and yet the factors that would bind to those regions are actually excluded. Um, and so it was then uh, around that Uh, around 2013 or so, when some of the first transcription factors were identified to bind to mitotic chromosomes. Was this just a, a, a matter of that they couldn't see it because it was so little of them left? Or uh, weren't they looking for the right ones? <laughs> well, so initially they thought it was the second, the, the latter, that it was a very select few. And in fact, you know, a lot of the focus was on 
um, lineage specifying transcription factors. So like GATA1 for hematopoietic stems, uh, hematopoietic lineage or FOXA1 for um, liver cells. Um, so those ones they were able to show by live cell imaging coding mitotic chromosomes really well. And so then after some time, people thought maybe it's these special transcription factors that can do it. And so at that time, I was look, I was studying uh, embryonic stem cells. So I thought, what could be more special than the uh, Yamanaka factors for embryonic stem cells? And so I thought maybe those factors are also playing a role in stem cell maintenance through mitotic bookmarking. And so I looked at OC4, SOX2, and tried to look at their um, tried to look at their uh, binding in mitosis versus asynchronous cells. And for two years, I kept getting two very opposite um, results. One, they are completely excluded from mitotic chromosomes, and the other sets of experiments would show they're completely binding to mitotic chromosomes. And I could not figure out why I have two opposing, opposing um, uh, results. And then after a summary to the lab, after one time of giving a lab meeting, when I've summarized all of it, I realized that all of the techniques that I was using for the negative, the, the exclusion ones, are all fixed cells, immunofluorescence, ChIP-seq at that time was cross-linked ChIP-seq, um, and then a few others. While the ones that I saw them binding on mitotic chromosomes are all um, non-fixed. So live cell imaging, uh, biochemical fractionation, cellular fractionation, assays. Um, so I thought, could the fixing part actually be doing this? And so there was this one key experiment where I had a SOX2 uh, tagged with a fluorescent marker, endogenously tagged, so it shouldn't, it's the only um, SOX2 in the cells. Um, and I have them under live cell microscope, recorded the video, and then I added, I spiked in formaldehyde while the video is running. And I could see this beautiful, just moving away from mitotic chromosomes. It was so crazy. Um, and so that's when I realized there's something wrong with the system, the, the techniques that we're using to study this phenomenon. And sure enough, after I switched to uh, native uh, chromatin profiling, such as at that time, cut and tag, um, I was able to, to actually observe SOX2 binding on mitotic chromosomes. And so that was an interesting two years of my life coming together. But the implication is that now, historically, people have observed SOX, uh, transcription factors on mitotic chromosomes through immunofluorescence. And the first step in immunofluorescence is fixing the cells. And so all of these studies might be affected by this cross-linking artifact of 
specifically, at least what we can observe specifically on mitotic, uh, mitotic cells, that it's leading the transcription factors to be mislocalized away from mitotic chromosomes. Which is very interesting because I, I would expect the opposite, right? If you use formaldehyde, then they would just be fixed in place where they are right now and not be moving away from from the place. Exactly. That, I mean, is it is it a, a physical effect? Is it like phase, se yeah. phase separation? So or The whole point of a fixation is that you fix things in place. Um, but what we read, what, so after many testing, we tested many different um, fixatives, we tested different conditions. So I'll give you the, the punchline. The, what we think is happening is that the fixation is not immediate. There is a diffusing component. And in the case of a mitotic cell, right, the formaldehyde has to enter the cell from the outside and then diffusing in. And so as it's going from the outside in, it's cross-linking going from the outside in. And so there's a rate associated with that. Now, if that rate is uh, slower than the off rate of transcription factors from mitotic chromosomes, right, you're effectively decreasing the pool of factors that can bind back to the chromosome because you're cross-linking the unbound ones first. So it's basically an osmotic effect. Sorry? It's basically an osmotic effect, right? Right, exactly. So then the ones that are still that are that are on the mitotic chromosomes that haven't had gotten crossing yet still has this off-rate um intrinsic to their properties, right? And so what we tested is that, well, it might be transcription factor dependent. If transcription factors have a really long stable binding time on the chromosomes, then they would be cross-linked. And sure enough, that's what we found on uh, certain transcription factors that have a really long uh, binding times. But most transcription factors have a shorter um, uh, binding times. And so they get this observed exclusion from mitotic chromosomes. And so it led to this kind of reevaluation that maybe it's not just a select few transcription factors that can do this, but rather, you know, either the ones that we observed are through live cell imaging, then we can see it actually enriched, or the ones that we they can observe through crosslink are stable binding enough that it can overcome this um, crosslinking um, osmotic effect. Um, and oh, so after my after that paper, so. The, the, that's the dynamic mode of mitotic bookmarking that we discovered. And the idea was that it's act, these transcription factors are actually binding to mitotic chromosomes, but they are binding in a dynamic manner. And that, um, that might still be sufficient to um, allow for maintenance of the open chromatin sites and still promote transcriptional memory after mitosis. Um, after that paper was, um, published, a uh, few other papers kind of followed along and sure enough, they showed that a whole bunch of transcription factors are able to do this in a, in, in the massive scale. So they, you know, tested 500 different transcription factors and, you know, more than three quarters of them are able to, to associate with mitotic chromosomes. 
So that's the that first paper, the, the dynamic mode. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry, I thought you had a question. And so at that time, at this at that time, I was looking at um, SOX2 for all of our favorite um, stem cell transcription factors. Um, but I was using TBP as a positive control. So because historically people have also shown TBP as a mitotic bookmarker in other in other systems. Um, so I thought, well, I have a positive control, right? I should just use TBP. But TBP behaved very differently from the other transcription factors. Now, TBP, as uh, your audience might know, is a general transcription factor. It's the Tata box binding protein. So it's one of the first transcription factors to bind to promoters um, of genes and recruit the rest of the transcriptional machinery. So it's a really important transcription factor. Um, Now, I thought, okay, well, maybe that's how um, you have bookmarking of all genes and not just the stem cell specific genes. So I thought, okay, well, while I'm doing the SOX2, then I'll have the TBP as our kind of positive control and just kind of do everything um, side by side. Um, but it turned out they behave very differently because TBP has a much longer um, binding time than SOX2. So uh, this is something that uh, we found through our uh, imaging approaches and through specifically a single molecule, single particle tracking approaches. And so one of the things I really got to learn in TGen lab is this uh, single particle tracking approach where under live cell condition where we can track each molecule, single molecules within live cells and either look at how dif- how they diffuse throughout the nucleus or how long they can bind to DNA um, and have a precise measure for their residence time. And so this is where we looked at SOX2 and we found that, you know, their average residence time is on the order of seconds. So maybe 10 seconds to 13 seconds, whereas TBP, we can see binding there for 60, 80, 100 seconds. So it's a, a an order of magnitude longer binding than um, SOX2. And so we thought, well, because of this dy- very stable behavior versus the dynamic behavior, they might be going through different mechanisms. Um, and sure enough, TBP was one of those that escape the formaldehyde fixation um, because it's so stably bind- bound on DNA. Um, and in fact, we can even chip uh, TBP on mitotic chromosomes. Um, and so we can see that the, the TBP can still uh, remain bound on previously active uh, promoters, uh, even during uh, mitosis. And so that was kind of our uh, idea for, or the the finding for that stable mode of bookmarking is that this factor can now actually promote the transcriptional reactivation of all active genes and not just the stem cell specific ones. And so that's where those two papers kind of diverged in a more general way versus the stem cell specific factors. Oh, yeah. 
So do you think that the finding that the formaldehyde cross-linking was causative for the observed exclusion of transcription factors to mitotic chromosomes also impacts, on the one hand, other methods where formaldehyde is used, like you said, CHIP, or also like other times of the cell cycle where it's not like mitosis, but also like G-phase? Um, would you think that this also um, has an impact on those um, yeah. situations? Um, so... I'm going to be speculating here <laughs> because as much as we tried, we could not do, we could not observe it on, on interface cells. And I think the interface cells, um, well, I should say the mitotic cells are unique in that the nuclear membrane is disassembled, right? So you have now your diffusion is now not just limited within the nucleus, but now throughout the whole cell. And so the same thing with the cross-linking I think that the interface cells might be buffered by this artifact um, because of the nuclear membrane. The diffusion of transcription factors at that time is contained. It cannot escape the nucleus. Um, and yet you still have this, you know, formaldehyde having to diffuse in, in order to actually do its action. Um, whether the intact nuclear membrane, you know, exacerbates that diffusion or buffers it is unknown. But um, there have been sporadic reports um, throughout the years showing that crosslink chip is not the same as native chip. So still chip, but, you know, under native conditions versus crosslink conditions. And so it's kind of, interesting to speculate that it might affect um at other you know at interface cells also now it's so obvious in mitosis because the the dynamics um is more different within mitotic cells whereas in interface cells you have um more protein protein interactions that can stabilize binding of transcription factors to, to chromatin oh, and it's open chromatin. And so hopefully that then mitigates that, mm -hmm. you know, lag time that you need for formaldehyde because you now have more of the stable binding. You are probably losing or you're blind to the more dynamic binding, perhaps the sampling um, approaches and which You know, it, other techniques that are independent of formaldehyde tend to have maybe higher noise. I'm thinking specifically of things like DAM-ID, for example, where you might see more um, sampling throughout the genome. And then you have, once it's stably bound to its site, then you have this massive signal. But whether that sampling, you know, is, is, is lost because of the formaldehyde, um, I'm not sure. So that's okay, what, yeah. that would be my speculation okay. of how mm -hmm. cross-linking might affect other <laughs> techniques. Yeah. <laughs> so if we move along the timeline of your career, you then started your own lab. And the first papers, I think, out of your own lab are now coming out. And we're recording this in 2023, and two uh, papers are, have come out this year, at least what I could see, one in March and one in, in June. And the first one, uh, there you looked at RNA-Pol2 transcription without TBP. 
and this was published in eLife, as I said, in March 2022. What did you find there about uh, RNA-Pol2 transcription? So this is a really another, another serendipitous um, study. <laughs> These because, are the best ones. <laughs> again, it, it's, it stemmed from uh, my postdoc work. So I talked about TBP in mitosis and it was kind of a nice study. One of the things, one of the tools I developed was a um, CRISPR-Cas9 knock-in of the oxygen-inducible Degron to the TBP gene. So I was able to rapidly deplete TBP and see its effect on, you know, its binding to mitotic chromosomes and then the effect of restarting transcription after that. So I thought, okay, this is a nice tool. I have this, um, this potential tool to also, you know, not rapidly knock out transcription. That was my thinking. If TBP is gone, and TBP is central to all transcription, then all transcription should stop. So that's what I thought, right? That was my control. I have a Degron that should stop transcription. Well, my control didn't work because transcription still kept going. And so when I, I kind of left it at that when I was finishing up my postdoc, but that question still kind of nagged me. Why? is this control, this TBP Degron, still now able to, transcription is still able to continue even without TBP. So why is my control not working? And so for my, when I started my own lab, this, this <laughs> contradiction has been nagging at me. And so those are, it's actually one of the first projects we started, even though I had been focused on transcriptional, you know, mitotic bookmarking, I kind of pivoted to this because I thought it was such a weird result. And it took us years and years and years to try and figure out what's going on in addition to starting the lab. And then of course, shutting down the lab Uh, during COVID. And so it's taken quite some time to kind of understand what's going on. Um, but now we think that it's actually revising, at least in the system of mouse embryonic stem cells, what we found is revising what we know about the role of TBP um, in at least RNA polymerase II machinery. So TBP is supposed to be important for all transcription, all three RNA polymerases. And sure enough, when we deplete TBP, RNA polymerase three transcription goes way down. So our system is behaving as we expect, except for POL2. <laughs> It doesn't seem to knock down POL2 transcription. And so we find, you know, the other general transcription factors can still bind, perhaps with different dynamics or different occupancy, but it can still bind. Pol2 can still transcribe, um, and yeah, there so are other transcription factors um, that come in. And I mean, it's a big machinery, RNA Pol2, right? I mean, it's there's so much going on. Exactly. So we did not have the resources or the manpower to exhaustively look at all of the transcriptional machinery. So even TF2D, which is in complex with TBP, has 13 other subunits. Right. So we looked at a couple of them and they have, they're still binding. They have, might have different occupancy, 
when when TBP is not there, but it's enough to support PAL2 transcription. And when I mean that there's no effect on PAL2 transcription, I mean that when we looked at on a gene by gene basis, we maybe have identified, you know, five to 20 genes, depending on replicates that have uh, any change in, in transcription. So 99% of the genes had no change in transcription when PAL2 or when TBP is depleted. So it's it's not just a small effect. <laughs> no, it's like there's there's literally literally no change. Um, and even if the Degron system, you know, there it's not a complete knockout. You know, there might still be some proteins that are still there, just because of that's how the Degron system works. Um, so if if there's still some left, then maybe you know, you would still see this kind of like titration effect, but we see no difference in, in expression levels. So that was a really surprising result to us. And what we think is happening is that the transcriptional machinery, the pull to is it's so big that it's so buffered that it's allowing for one factor to be absent if just for a short period of time. Now, cells still die without TBP. It's an essential protein. Um, but during the time before they die, <laughs> well, two can still transcribe. <laughs> and so there's enough buffering system to allow for pol 2 to keep going. And we think that they're dying because pol 3 is likely, you know, tRNAs are gone. Um, and once the tRNA pool is is used up, cells can no longer function. Yeah, sure. And not uh, last but not least, and this is yeah, kind of fresh off the press, uh, published in June 2023, you looked at heat shock proteins and heat shock transcription factors and their behavior on metodic chromosomes. So more yes, in the direction yes. that you're probably anyways want to go forward with. Yeah. So, um, you know, starting up our lab, we had had half of the people working on the TBP project and then the other half working on my uh, continuation of my postdoc project, which is looking at transcription factors on how they 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 behave on mitotic chromosomes. And the heat shock uh, transcription factors are really interesting because they have, in addition to their DNA binding domain, and in addition to their transactivation domain, which is the two typical domains for a transcription factor, they have a regulatory domain, which makes sense because they're responsive to stress. Now, the regulatory domain, in addition to being responsive to stress, also allows for um, self-interaction. So in, in the case of the heat shock transcription factors, um, it allows for trimerization. So they they bind as trimers to DNA. And we found that it's the association of um, heat shock transcription factors to mitotic chromosomes is initially dependent on the DNA binding domain, which makes sense because it's the DNA binding domain, but it's actually modulated by the regulatory domains and its ability to trimerize. If we remove that trimerization domain, we see way more 
binding of the transcription factors on mitotic chromosomes. And so it's actually preventing transcription factors from associating with DNA. And so now we think that this might be an added regulation for us, you know, these types of transcription factors that have more than just the DNA binding and the transactivation that might um, allow for more nuance in how they uh, how they behave with during mitosis and how they might um, activate transcription afterwards. But yes, that's kind of the main gist of that that study. Um, and it's it's kind of nice. It's a it's um you know nice. Let's chop up the the transcription factors and see and see what happens. Kind of deal. So the the classical approach of uh, delineating the function of a protein, right, and <laughs> doing exactly, genetic exactly. mutation, <laughs> going back to roots and 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 seeing um, you know classic kind of molecular biology genetics kind of thing. So is this uh, what you are currently working on and what you are planning to do for the next five years? Oh, that's a great question. Um, we have we we continue to be interested in behaviors of transcription factors through the cell cycle. Um, But this this TBP um, <laughs> the TBP paper has really kind of made us question what we know and what we don't know, um, and so I'd like to figure out what happens to RNA polymerase one. So TBP is important for all three RNA polymerases, and I've been ignoring RNA polymerase one um, for a reason <laughs> because we could not handle the repeats. Um, and so I'd like to be able to do uh, these types of experiments now on RNA polymerase one uh, machinery. Um, and then uh, I, we're, we actually have a, a new angle in the lab, more on the evolution of transcription factors. So a lot of this, we're talking about highly conserved machineries, but yet able to diversify to different for different species and specific species specific regulation. And so we're kind of uh, uh, leading towards that um, angle also looking at which how do these transcription factors balance you know the evolution constraint to maintain their function while also allowing for um, diversification for regulation for species specific function. So that's kind of where we're heading for the next five years. Um, I'm hoping to also look at um, hardcore mechanisms of transcription factors and, and their specific function um, through a lot of the tools that have been recently developed, such as, you know, the CRISPR-Cas9 knock-in of the Degron system, allowing us to really look at immediate effects, right? Which is the, the, the real... Uh, advance with TBP, right? TBP has been studied for decades and it's such an important protein. But with the new technology that we have, we can actually see a lot of these immediate early effects uh, if the transcription factor is gone. Um, and it's really reshaping a lot of what we thought we knew about how these factors behave, especially the essential ones, because you can't knock them out, right? So um, now I'm hoping to kind of look at those 
more essential transcription factors using this these new techniques and how we can kind of fine tune and um, maybe reevaluate what we thought we knew. So for the last 45 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Um, did we miss something important or would you like to add something? Um, the only thing I will add is that, um, you know, I've been kind of speaking about this as if I did it all, but I did not. Um, I have had a lot of help along the way. And especially now with my lab, uh, you know, like a lot of the, the, The work is being done by the graduate students in my lab, specifically James Kwan and Thomas Nguyen on the TBP um, project, and then Rachel Price, graduate student and postdoctoral fellow, uh, Merrick Budzinski on the heat shock transcription factors. And so I'm really grateful to be to have had the opportunity to work with really talented people uh, throughout my career and to work now with talented Uh, trainees, graduate students um, in in my own lab. So, yep. Thank you, Sheila, for your time and for being on the show. Thank you so much. It was really fun talking with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast@activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.